Welcome to the IC Disc Show. Interviews with business owners, industry leaders, and tax experts sharing how the IC Disc can benefit your bottom line profits. Check out the show notes at icdiscshow.com. This show is brought to you by the IC Disc Alliance. Discover how the premier IC Disc consulting firms support you at icdisc.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Hi, this is Dave, and welcome to the podcast. I had an amazing interview with a guy named Greg O'Brien, who has one of the most interesting CPA practices I've ever seen. He's based in Boston, but it's a virtual firm. Both employees and clients are all over the country. And they do their work on a subscription basis only. And we go into the story of why he ended up with this model, the challenges he's had, and all the benefits of it. So Greg is a really dynamic, young, very bright, enthusiastic guy, very personable. And I really enjoyed the interview. It might have set the record as my longest interview time-wise, but it was really enjoyable and it just flew by. So I hope you enjoy the episode uh, as much as I did. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So where are you Where are you calling in from today? Where are you located? I am in Boston, Mass. So it's a balmy 37 degrees and sunny today. Uh, okay. Now, are you a native Bostonian? I am. Grew up about 20, 25 minutes outside of the city. I currently am a resident of the city. So I've been in the city for about 10 years since college. I've lived in the city. So... I do love the city living, but I'm sure the suburbs will call me back eventually. Sure. And I, some of my favorite food is there on the North End. Oh, amazing. Is that right? Did I use, is that the correct description of the area? Yeah, the North End, Little Italy. Yep. That's the our Italian district in Boston. So some of the best restaurants for sure in New England there. Yeah. And unfortunately, I had a cannoli there once and it ruined me on cannolis anywhere else. Mike's Pastry, I'm sure. Yeah, that's the famous place. Yeah, I was with a friend who lived there on a visit, and and so she took me around. I don't remember the, the names of it, but it was fun. And I was a huge Celtics fan back in the Larry Legend days. So nice. back when you were either before you were born or you were just a small kid. It's very young years. I, I believe my my mother was pregnant during one of those championship games that they, they went to at the Garden with me. So yeah, I didn't witness it myself, but I was there in spirit, I guess. That is awesome. So, uh, so you decided to stay in Boston and Massachusetts, went to college in Massachusetts, right? Yeah. I went to a school called Bentley university here outside of Boston business school. So it's kind of pigeonholed into business right there. Then there's not no liberal arts offered there. So it was, it used to be a pure accounting school back in the day. And then, and now it's kind of a dynamic business school, but I went the route of accounting and finance there and accounting kind of drew me in probably by sophomore year. It just, accounting is something that made sense to me. Um, and I remember taking a class in international finance. And I said, this is not for me, the international finance part. So I reverted back to a straight accounting major. And then I stayed there for my graduate as well. And I ended up getting a master's in taxation through the same school. That's great. And then you got out and decided to stay in Massachusetts and went to work for, I guess, a regional CPA firm. Is that right? Yeah. Regional CPA firm that was about 30 minutes away. And the reason I actually chose that firm was they were relatively close to the college. And so I, my fifth year, maybe fifth and sixth, it took me about two years to get my master's. I wanted to work while t- getting my master's. So 
it was the commuting to work and then commuting to school at night. This was before, you know, there was a little bit of online stuff back then, but there mm-hmm. wasn't a pure hybrid model. So, you know, it was four nights a week from six to eight 30 PM is brutal, but I wanted to be relatively close. So I did, I stayed out of the city and went to the original firm, which was great. And that kind of, you know, indirectly led to me where I am today because they specialize in high tech pharmaceuticals, life science, the early days of AI, that's what they were focused on. So I was in that technology group there, both audit and tax, which was just a great learning experience. That's great. And so like me, you did your two years tour of duty in public accounting, and then it sounds like you went into industry. Two years. And honestly, you know, it was a more traditional firm and I didn't have a good taste of public accounting. There was my second or maybe third tax season. So after two years, April 16th, there was kind of like the, you know, bloody Sunday model there. And they laid a bunch of people off right after tax mm-hmm. season. I had a few people that I was close with that I became friends with. You know, you're grinding through the busy season. This is the traditional six day a week model, 10 hours a day, spending a lot yeah. of time with each other in office. And, you know, the day after tax season, I think it was like a Tuesday, middle of the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, like they laid a bunch of tax people off and it just didn't sit right with me. That was, you know, just kind of par for the course there. And these people that had spent a lot of time. And so that that did sour me a little bit from that model. I said, you know, I don't think public accounting is for me. I don't like this, this model, how it's working. And, you know, at the same time you're young, recruiters are hitting you up on, on LinkedIn and everything. So sure. I got an offer to go to a real estate developer. It, it, interesting model. They're kind of, they're funded by a public pension plan. And so they do a lot of real estate development in the Northeast using fiduciary money. So I went to them and I worked on the, for the uh, financial and accounting side for them for a few years. And I loved it because that really opened my eyes to real estate, which I didn't have a background in before that. So it was a great change for me. And it definitely, I noticed the difference, right? Like the first February, I was like, wait, we don't have to work six days a week now. And like, it was so refreshing to me, right? That you didn't have... I, that's all I knew. I thought you had to work six days a week, 10 hours a day. And that's all I had known at that point until I went back into private industry. Yeah. And of course, if you split the difference, if you just work like nine or 10 hours a day, five days a week, you're like a rock star in mm-hmm. industry, it seems oh, like. Totally. Totally. Yeah. The work ethic they teach you in the traditional public accounting model, it certainly doesn't hurt. Sure. So you, uh, you uh, left public accounting. And then I guess it seems like, isn't there a line from a mob movie that talks about, I think it's Michael Corleone, maybe in The Godfather, mm. that just when he tries to get out, they pull him back in. So how did you end up back in public accounting? You know, what happened was I, so I spent a few years at this real estate firm and then my boss had left there and I became close to them. He went to a publicly traded REIT, which was local here brought me along with him there, which was great. I, I really did love it. There is a called Federal, Federal Realty. So they're an investment REIT. Great company. I, I love them. And I've uh, spent a few years there. But along that way, I kind of had my own entrepreneurial awakening and a lot of self-learning, self-development podcasts. I listened to a lot of stuff. And I said, geez, you know, I have this master's degree in taxation. I'm frankly not using it. I have I can answer tax questions with my friends and family, but I don't really use it. And I'm in real estate, which I do, I do like, but something, you know, something doesn't sit right with me. So just really started side hustling friends, family tax returns on the side. Then I was like, Hey, this is pretty cool. I can make some money doing this. And then I'm probably 26, 27 years old at this time. I said, this is pretty, this is extra money for rent. This is cool. And I started actually just reaching out to new startups in Boston. I said, Hey, you need any help with your first year corporate tax return? And what I was actually doing was I would go to the secretary of state website and I would kind of look at all the incorporated entities. And a lot of them, you know, as you know, like there's XYZ LC, right? Just some real, you don't know who they are, but 
there's a, there was enough of them out there that was like XYZ company or a product. I said, okay, that's a real company. Let me do some due diligence, find the founder, Google them, found the founder, reverse engineered email addresses. I was spending like my weekends doing this and uh, I can't find their email. Okay. Let's just figure out what their email address. It's either W last name or just first name at, and I just uh -huh. figured it out. So I was just reaching out to people blindly saying, Hey, you know, just wonder if you need help with your first year C Corp tax return. And, you know, out of the 50 people I emailed, probably five said, yeah, actually we don't have an accountant yet. So three of those five are still clients today and they're large companies. So that's how it all started. I just kind of side hustle into that. Once I got up to a point where I said, okay, there's a little bit of revenue here. I got some ongoing like part-time virtual CFO type gigs that I established these companies, no process, no idea what I was doing, but I just signed agreements with them that I had enough revenue where I said, okay, I can now set an exit date here to take the plunge and it's going to be a softer landing, right? It's not like I'm going mm -hmm. from having a pretty nice cushy salary to just, I have a, you know, I live in the city, I have a rent payment to zero. I had some revenue. So I kind of set a date in the sand for myself and I said, it was September 1st of 20 of 2018. I said, I'm quitting my job by that date. And then one day in August, I just, before that I woke up and I said, today's the day. And I walked in and I butchered it. I fumbled through it, but I said, I quit and I'm starting my own business. And they were like, that's awesome. But like, what are you talking about? And I had my plan and I was ready to go at that point. And fortunately for me, I had a little bit of a soft landing because the company I was leaving you know, large companies can't replace people very quickly. So they asked me to be like a 1099 consultant for 30 days to transition out. I'm like, okay, this is really nice. Now I get a soft landing pad so I can hustle for 30 days, find more revenue. So that's what it was, right? I just had to take the jump, take the leap of faith and hope it worked. Mm -hmm. But it was more from me getting into the entrepreneurship than like being attracted to public accounting. It was more about, I want to start my own business. Mm -hmm. And my best path was what I know best, which was tax at that time. No, that makes sense. And I don't know if you experienced this, but I also had a similar entrepreneurial journey. But as soon as you went contract, in my experience, they immediately treat you better. They treat you more like a guest instead of slave labor. Very, very interesting comment there. Yeah. What I noticed was it was more about on my time frame. now is the terms flipped quickly. It was Hey, can you get this done? I'm like, yeah, I'll get that done by Wednesday. Not, can you get it done by 5 PM? You know? So I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Let's how this works on the other side. Right. So yeah, that was, that was great for that small period of time. And then my um, initial entry plan, and we'll get into this, but my initial plan was just get as many clients as possible, right? I didn't really understand at that time the model. And all I knew was the traditional public firm model. And I'd actually sat in a coffee shop in Boston and I'd, ri I'd written this whole business plan up because I wanted to convince my family and my friends this was doable. And the whole plan was about client acquisition, right? I need to get 750 clients in the next two years to do a tax term for them to make enough money. And I was like, geez, this is, that's a lot of clients. And I was doing things like looking at buying zip code lists and like mailers, like everything. But that's all I had known to that point, right? Mm, sure. My first month, I didn't really know what I was doing other than I needed someone that made a little bit of money and they had a government responsibility. And that's what I knew at that time. Okay. So, so when did you start to have the mental shift or the epiphany that fewer clients on a subscription basis or a concierge basis was the way to go. I'd love to hear that story. Yeah. So I I got started to like, you know, 20, the end of 2018, this was all in September, October. So got through that. Getting into 2019 now, I got introduced to an organization called the American Institute of Certified Tax Planners, AICTC. They're called, they're out in San Diego, a nonprofit. And their whole goal is kind of, is bringing advanced tax strategy down to more normal business owners, right? Take the stuff from the uber wealthy. Can we 
apply to smaller businesses? And the answer is mostly yes, right? So I learned about this. Someone had referred me. I talked to them. And honestly, it was kind of like a pressured sales situation. They said, you know, you got to commit to this. It's three-day training out in San Diego, which is nice, but it's a good amount of money. And then you need to do all this work to get the certification. I said, okay, this is a lot of money, right? I think it was at that time it was like $7,500 plus a subscription. And I said, I don't know anything about them, but they also said you have like, basically have 48 hours to decide. So I said, oh, you know, and I don't, that's not my style. I don't love like the, that high pressure. And that kind of like, oh, I don't know about this. And I'd asked some people and they said, you know, what's the worst going to happen? I said, well, the worst happens about the 7,500. And I called a few people that had done it and they said, yeah, it's definitely worth it. You should do it if you're interested in this. So I bit the bullet, pulled the trigger and I did it. And I immediately learned from the founder, her name is Dominique Molina. I, I learned from the founder that she was charging very high fees for tax planning, not tax prep, right? And she kind of mm-hmm. took my mind immediately that compliance comes second, strategy comes first. Mm-hmm. And I never thought about that before. I, I understood some of the strategies, but I just kind of thought you just did them along the way, right? It just that's what you mind. were, that's how you learned it. That's how I learned it. So my, what I had learned in my traditional model was, the client asked some questions along the way and you answered the questions, you researched them, but we weren't bringing necessarily at that staff level, we weren't bringing ideas to clients. They were more probing us for the ideas and yeah. we might research what they asked us to do. So she kind of turned the model around. And one of the things she taught at this training, you know, was it the old sales trick where, you know, Hey, David, it's, if I have, if I give you a hundred dollar bill, would you pay me $20 for it? Of course you would, right? You would pay me a 20 to get a hundred. And she said, no accountants really think like that, right? If you're going to, in, in the CPA world, you can't charge contingent pricing, but you can charge value pricing. So if you're delivering a million dollars of tax saving to someone, you shouldn't be charging them $750 for a tax return, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. So it just, I went to this seminar and this conference for a week out in San Diego. And like my mind was churning. I said, geez, I got to get back. And I was on the plane ride back. And there's some prospect that owns some small business here in Boston I was talking to. And I said, looked at their fact pattern. Now I learned how to analyze everything to figure out how to do tax planning. I already had the knowledge in my head. I have a master's degree, but I didn't really understand how to look at a situation properly. So I emailed them. I said, I think there's 15,000 of tax savings here, you know, and they're like, oh, really? Tell me more. I said, yep, we're into it. But, you know, it's going to be, I think I said $3,500 to go through this. And I said, I was like holding my breath and they responded, okay, sure. I'm like, oh my gosh, someone's going to pay me $3,500 to do this like consulting engagement, which I don't even really know what I'm going to do yet. So that was where it was all born. So that was the start of it, right? Is that, and then Dominique and that organization really pitch, you need to have a maintenance subscription model on the back end, right? Just because you sell, you're sell, you selling this great tax plan, the client's saving six figures, you can't just stop then, right? You have to have some kind of ongoing engagement that goes beyond just filing forms with the government. So that then began the journey of iterations of subscriptions, right? There's been a thousand to date, but that's where it all started. I said, I wasn't thinking that way at all, right? I was just like, you pay me 500, you pay me a thousand, you pay me a thousand. So I started just pitching to clients, right? Saying, hey, would you be interested in this model? And initially I didn't have my pitch down and people were like, I'm confused what's involved here. So fast forward to like probably sometime in later 19, one of the members of that organization, her name is Jackie Meyer. She's in, she's in Texas, Meyer CPA. She had also has a coaching business and she had been talking to me, hey, you should join this coaching community. It's called the concierge group, certified concierge group. And she had a sales coach as well. And I said, ah, I don't need that. I don't need coaching. Like I'm good. I learned things myself. Kept saying, you should join this. You should join this. I eventually joined it. And that's where the business model really took off because I really learned how she was pricing 
these lucrative, I'll call them TAS, tax advisory services on the back end, where you know her average client was paying her $1,000 a month for just advisory, never mind compliance after the tax planning, right? I said, oh, okay, I get really got to figure this out. So that's where that model is really born is through these conversations and learning. And I always tell people everything that I've developed to date has been just, you can use the word borrowing or stealing from other people along the way, right? I take a little bit from that person, mm-hmm. from this person, and then just craft it based on what our avatar client really likes, right? So that was the beginning of it. So like, I was fortunate to not have a very high amount of quote unquote, like bad clients to start. Cause I was in the first mm-hmm. six months maybe of starting when this all clicked in my head. Whereas I've been in these groups with other accountants that in these coaching groups where they've been operating for 25, 30 years and they have 5,000 clients yeah. and they're trying to convert them to subscription and or fire 90% of them. Right. So I always say I'm very fortunate and blessed to have started. I'll call it the correct way from the beginning versus having to just disrupt the business model after 10 years, right? So that's well, how I, th- I think there's some validation you're doing it the correct way. You probably know one of the guests on my podcast, Ron Baker, or familiar yes. with his work. I'm actually and reading the new book right now. It's at home, but I got it from Amazon. One on time? Yeah, time's up. Time's up. Yeah. You know, he's got a podcast too that's really good. I've heard the soul, the soul of enterprise, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 pretty good. A little secret about Ron. He was actually named after Ronald Reagan. Really? He grew okay. up in California and he was born like in the early 60s when Reagan was governor of California. Interesting. Yeah. Which is back when California was a solid Republican state, which you know seems hard to before, that's well before my lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mine, mine too. So so Ron Baker says it's a good idea. And uh, you know, Ron talks about how because you know, his original book, Pricing on Purpose, I think was probably written 20, 25 years mm-hmm. ago. And he talked, he talks on his podcast that he didn't go far enough then that subscription is really the name of the game. And and you know, it's funny, for 10 years, I've been threatening to start a CPA firm. And every so often I would run this by some folks and they all loved it. And they're like, where do we sign up? I'm like, yeah, but A, I don't really want to run a full service CPA firm and B. I don't really have it set up. But what I found was when I talked to potential clients, the vast majority of them are not happy with their CPA firm. Now, that's for potential clients. Now, our current clients, they are all ecstatic with their current CPA firm. Any of the CPA firms of any of my clients, they're all ecstatic with you. Okay, yeah. So we're talking about you know other folks. And the two things they were not satisfied with, you want to guess the two things they were not happy with? It's probably communication and lack of strategy. Yeah. Or, yep. The way they described it was they had to bring the ideas to the CPA. There was mm-hmm. no proactivity. And the second was the CP, all the CPA ever said was no. So oh, yeah. the CPA wasn't proactive. So the client tried to be proactive. And then every idea they brought to the CPA said, no, that yeah. won't work. That's too aggressive. You're going to get audited. I think what we hear oftentimes, that's one of the, if we have an incoming prospect on our questionnaire that they fill out before they meet with us, we say, do you have a CPA? Yes or no. If yes, why are you leaving? I want to know that, right? Because it, it works both ways. It could also be that the client is not a good client and we're trying to kind of make sure, sure there's no red flags. But generally speaking, the answers we hear are, you know, I email and call them or contact them the way they tell me to, but it's like three plus weeks before I hear back at all. When I do hear back, it's not very strategic. It's more of that, what you just said, David, you can't do that. 
can't do that. And like, they're just, they seem too busy for me. That's what I hear a lot. Right. Yeah. And we hear, and like, I think what's happened in the past five years is that the evolution of podcasts, the evolution of online communities, Facebook groups, Twitter, there's a lot of people talking about tax strategy out there and people are reading this business owners are reading this and like, huh, I'm going to ask my CPA about this. And they don't respond to the table. We don't have time for this. A really good example is, you know, not that we want to remember this time too well, but back in 2020, when everything happened at the beginning of COVID, March of 2020, I'll never forget. It was a Friday in March, I believe, when the CARES Act was published, pushed through Congress faster than any bills ever been passed through on the tax side. And I remember sitting in my office at the time, and I was the only one in this office building because I just wanted to be in the office. And I, I looked at this thing and I said, geez, this thing is a goldmine of like, of client-facing tax opportunities here. There's all these weird things. This what is this PM? Like the way I'm reading this, it's sort of free money to clients if they qualify. And I'm like, what am I missing here? So I spent the whole weekend with, I, we had a team of about three at that time. We read through it and like I was networking with other CPAs. What are your thoughts on this? And I, all I knew is that this is a something our clients are going to need. So that next Monday or two, I, I, one of the first videos I ever published for clients, I published a video about it. I remember my hair was long because we couldn't get haircuts and everything we shut down. I published this video. I said, you know, this is how you have to do it. The applications, contact your bank immediately. And we decided that time, honestly, screw tax season. Let's shift into this because the, if, if we're late on a tax return and ask corporate return or a, whatever, sure. we have a fatal penalty, who cares? These people are about to go out of business and we can get them $250,000, right? So we shifted everything. And what happened there was our clients were sharing our content with their friends and family. And then they were coming to us saying, hey, our CPA said they're not bothering with this. They're too busy with taxes. They're not dealing with this. I said, they should be dealing with this. And I mean, that's when ERC was born. All this stuff is happening. I said, they should be dealing with this, right? Because this is a, who else is going to do it, right? Their lawyers aren't going to do it. Right. Their bankers aren't going to do it for them. They can't do it themselves because it's a 200 page tax law to read through. So that opened my eyes that, okay, like people want value add, they want strategy. And that that right there, just people started coming to us more. And it was just referrals, referrals from existing clients because of the content that we were sharing. So you know, that kind of opened my eyes that a lot of CPAs don't want to deal with this kind of stuff, right? They want to just do the compliance piece of it, what they know best, and anything else, all of these law changes don't want to deal with it because it's honestly a lot of work, right? To learn and to do it. But sure. then I said, I, we have to double down on being cutting edge, proactive with new law, with new strategy versus just throwing our hands up and saying, too complicated, too busy, find somebody else, right? So that's just an easy example of what I saw, what opened my eyes at the beginning of the possibilities that are out there. Wow. Yeah, I, when people will ask me why their CPA is not more proactive. So I have this theory that when the person started their practice and they didn't have very many clients, they were proactive. But like in Texas, the final due date for the state corporate returns, the franchise return is November 15th. So that's a final due date. And so I was thinking about it. Okay. In Texas, if a CPA has one year that they kind of get, quote, behind and can't catch up, they can't really take a breather till after November 15th, mm -hmm. right? And if they've just been in reactive mode for 11 months, right? And then comes Thanksgiving, they just want a break, right? Thanksgiving, the holidays. And then the next thing they know, it's January 1st, time for all the start of the year, closing the book stuff. So my theory is that a lot of them will intend to have planning and used to have planning, but there was that one year they got behind and they never caught up. 
So that's my well, theory on it. Exactly right. There's a, you should look up as a guy out there. He owns a accounting community called Realize. His name is Jason Stats. Really interesting YouTube channel. And he published a video last week about this. And he's a very comical guy. And he basically said a lot of CPAs, right? January through April, I can't do, I can't do this. I can't talk to new clients. I can't do anything. It's busy season. Then comes May and June. Busy season just ended. I don't want to deal with any of this. I need a breather, right? It's summer vacation. Kids are out of school. I can't do anything. Now it's August. Up oh, nine fifteen deadlines coming. I can't deal with anything because I get it ready for nine fifteen. Up oh, ten fifteen here. Then you said eleven, and then it's holidays, right? So it's like it's this never ending cycle of I can't do it because there's no time. But if you back up to the why of that, David, why is that? Mm-hmm. It's because most of these companies have thousands and thousands of tax returns yeah. that they're charging one off, right? So as Ron Baker says, they have to sell the pen every single year. There's no guarantee yeah. they're coming back to buy that pen. So, so it's very high pressure, right? And meaning that if you churn over, ta- it, you're in the commodity game at that point, right? Because yep. someone's going to say, well, David's been charging me 1500 for this tax churn, but I can go probably go ask the guy down the street for 1215 He'll probably say 1250 is a good deal for me because I just opened my shop, right? Who wants to be in that game, right? Like, sure. That, and that's what happens though. And then it becomes, well, how do I make my money up from losing that client? I got to sell two more tax returns, right? Yep. And what I have found is the ratio of tax returns to staff is extremely high in these type of firms, oh, very, sure. very high, right? So like people ask us, well, how many tax returns do you guys do for the size of company we are? I'm like under 400, maybe 385 this year. And we have a team of all in 23. They don't all work on tax, but not people are preparing maybe like 30 to 40 tax returns, right? They are more complicated and there's more work that goes into them, but you need to have time for advisory, right? So you have to build that into your overall business model and pricing model. So if you think about it from a, I always think about it of like, you know, let's say in the school world, like the schools will say, hey, come to our university because our average ratio of a professor to students is yep. 50 to one, 300 to one at the big public universities, right? Well, yep. I think about the same way. I will tell prospects our ratio of staff to a client, each staff member really has about 20 relationships they deal with, right? Because a relationship might mean an S Corp and two owners. It could be one owner with four businesses, different scenarios, right? But we want them working monthly throughout the year with these people. I don't think it's possible for someone to physically manage more than 20 to 25 relationships, right? Ongoing. Mm-hmm. I remember the days of having, hey, you have 250 tax turns you've done. It was literally a folder on my desk. I have no idea who the person was. It was just an email. Hey, I'm missing your HSA statement. Send it to me. I don't know who this person is, what they do, and nothing about them. It was just a number in a file and I moved on, yeah. right? Yeah. But the way I think about it is how can you really add value to someone from this standpoint? if you're dealing with the volume, right? Too many. Now, what where it gets tricky, David, and this whole thing is that people will say, well, our my staff can't handle that type of advisory, right? So the issue with a lot of smaller firms is getting the staff to buy into the advisory piece of it and getting comfortable. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of self-training. We do a lot of programming to make sure that the team's comfortable. And then second, at the top, we need to do a lot of what we call one-to-many advisory, right? So what I mean by that is we're doing weekly client-only strategy videos, weekly client-only knowledge-based guides of how to implement that strategy. We're doing monthly webinars with experts in different various fields like real estate, insurance. We bring them in, talk to our clients where I can negotiate and get all this stuff done in the background. I can create videos, but then the clients get them all, right? They feel satisfied. They're getting high-level advisory. They can come back to our team to answer the questions. The team's educated on it. So that is what I think is the forefront of the next part of advisory is getting firms to buy into this one-to-many concept, right? Of 
hey, although there are only maybe three people at the firm that really know this strategy, why don't they just record these videos and record this stuff for clients and get it out to them, right? So I think- That's brilliant. Yeah, Instead of no, having the same conversation 300 times. You, you know where it clicked for me, David? And every accountant gets the question, how do I deduct my auto through my business, right? Like I, I had a breaking point like a year and a half ago. And I'm like, I can't get this question. I'm, I can't answer this anymore. Like the staff has asked me, well, this is because they're an S corp with two owners, like blah, blah, blah. How does it differ between the partnership and the S corp? I said, I can't do it anymore. So I recorded like a 20 minute video with a whole guide, a nice PowerPoint. And I said, if anyone ever asks this again, you send them this to our staff. So what that opened me up to, right, is, okay, that's interesting. That's going to work. Why don't we do that for everything? So what we did was developed an internal knowledge base of strategy where if a client asks something, I'm 90% sure. Now, maybe I don't have one on IC discs yet, but I'm 90% sure on other strategies. I have a written guide in a video that's already been done in our database that we can send out to the client to at least, at the very least, get them comfortable and educated. Now, they may have specific follow-up questions to that, but it's not reinventing the wheel of, in order to deduct your auto, you must do the following, right? Which is a 20 minute time suck for the staff. So this whole one to many world has opened up my eyes a lot of what, what the possibilities are in the future. Yeah. And that's also part of what they get for that subscription is that knowledge base. Correct. And that we tell clients too, because here's one th- tricky part, right? Where Ron Baker talks a lot about this and we've struggled with this mindset wise, right? Is in the CPA profession, the tax or even legal profession, are you doing a subscription or are you doing an annual fee divided by 12, right? I think here, I think Ron Baker will say, is it recurring revel- recurring revenue or reoccurring revenue, right? There's a slight difference. Yeah. And geez, I'm like, huh, I, I think I felt a little trapped in that too, right? Because what a CPA might say, including myself, is that, well, the tax return in 2021 might be a lot easier than it was in 2022. I need to reprice it in 2022. Yeah. But that's but you don't know that information till like November, right? Or December, what happened? So I said, okay, but Ron will kind of counter that point and say, it doesn't matter, right? You're pricing a customer for life. You want that yeah. average customer lifetime value to be seven years or more, right? You want to have this long relationship with them. So does it really matter if you lost $500 from a little bit more complicated input of time to that tax return uh-huh. this year? So that might, that's a mindset shift we've been going through, right? Of let's just say you're working with me, David. And then in June, you say, Hey, I'm, I need to have an extra meeting with you because of this deal that I'm about to do. Right. But I'm like, well, the agreement says it's four meetings per year. You want to, right, right. some people might get all bothered by that and say, well, I get to charge him a rate to do that meeting. And I think we're saying now is no, just do it. It's relationship. Goodwill. It's going to come back to us in the back end, Right. So, or here's the one that everyone deals with a client comes in today. They say it's March 15th. I extended my S corp. Do you think you can do my S corp and my personal return for 2022? Now, what I used to say is we will do that, but that's a separate fee because that's in the past. We're pricing the future. Mm-hmm. Now we say, yes, we will do that as part of the subscription, right? Because I'm pricing this relationship with you and we'll mm-hmm. get that done. What is our, it's an opportunity cost to us. We're giving up someone's staff members time to get that done. But why would I try to jam them up front where I know they're going to be with me for seven years, right? We're right. Going to well, and especially if you have some excess capacity. Yep. Your incremental cost is zero if you had the capacity. Absolutely. And capacity is obviously a complicated subject, but that's very, a very good point. And we always say is it has to be on our terms though, right? We're very clear about that is sure. you're not coming in on March 16th and you're not getting this on March 20th. We're going to have a process and you're going to be very process-oriented on your onboarding systems, but yeah, we'll get that done for you. Of course we will, right? Where I think a lot of people will say, no, we can't do that, right? And then they're held in limbo, right? They're like, oh, yeah. what do I do? Like, how do I get it done? So 
the mindset shift for a lot of people, I think, is getting from hourly billing to just fixed pricing divided by 12, right? And that is a massive shift to get to there. And then getting from the fixed price divided by 12, I call it to a true subscription where it's it's truly month to month. If someone wants to really work you over and they join in January and then you do their S Corp and they quit on March 16th, hey, maybe you're out, but it is what it is, right? And I think the counterpoints that Ron always says to that kind of stuff is, if you're doing a really good job and you have a really good service and you have a really good subscription, they're not going to leave, right? Right. If it's very mediocre and they're paying you and you're not doing much for them, they could leave. So, you know, I've become a really big believer in like, you have to have like a really good model. You can't just figure out the pricing and say, great, I'm going to price David now. He's going to pay me monthly, but not change what you're doing for them. You have to get in front of them, add more value in like a true mm-hmm. subscription, like Netflix. I'll use an example. They didn't just upload 200 movies and just say, see you later. They upload right. new stuff like daily, right? So I'm trying, we're trying to think that way. Now, of course, we're not like uploading movies here as a business, but what can we keep adding, but not changing the price, right? So one of those things is let's co- weekly add more content to them, mm-hmm. content, give them content. Good example, this past week, that whole Silicon Valley bank debacle happened. Yeah. We had several clients that were exposed by that. And what we did on Friday was kind of just filter through our list of who, who we think was affected. And we, over the weekend, spent time with bankers trying to negotiate opening bank accounts by Monday at 9 a.m. Like these are series A, B funded companies that have businesses to run. So I'm not going to charge them for that work and for lost work in the weekend. That's just part of the relationship, right? Yeah. And that's truly how we try to think of it now. You know, we do a similar thing. And the way I think of it is I call it a portfolio approach. So like any given year about, you know, like you, we do about 400 disc returns a year. And in any given year, about 15% of our clients don't use the disc. They had a bad year. They, you know, their exports are off for whatever reason they don't, and we'll file a zero return for them. And so usually we don't know that on January 1. If we knew that on January 1 and we just say, okay, zero return, no more time. But we usually don't know it till the end of the year. We've already spent some time and, you know, we've already done the you know, year-end estimates to make the 60-day estimated payment. That's usually about the time we're finding this. But usually, most of the time, I have to be careful how I say this. Depending on the fee structure, you know, clients who are on a uh, like a platinum plan, if you mm-hmm. will, we usually don't charge them for zero returns. The year they have a zero return, we don't charge them anything for that, mm-hmm. just because we know they got no value from it. If they didn't use the disc that year, it probably means they had a bad year financially. So the last thing they need is one more expense that they can't really justify. And the traditional approach to that is. Geez, Dave, you're stupid. You're leaving all this money on the table because you, you know, if we do charge for a zero return, you know, it's typically three grand or something for a client who's, you know, who we're talking to periodically. And but we don't think about it that way. We think of the whole portfolio, and just kind of like an insurance company that we can absorb doing 50 zero returns a year and not getting paid on those because it's not always the same 15% of the client. And so as long as the portfolio is growing and the portfolio profitability is there, we really could care less. The funny thing is like, that's when you really cement those client relationships is when they have a bad year and you don't charge them anything. Like, Hey, we never got our invoice. Oh yeah. And we're not going to invoice you. Yeah, no, totally. I think that portfolio example is good because I think 
you know, we all, the other side of our house here too, we, you know, we have a full service client accounting division. So you're doing monthly accounting and stuff. And a lot of people get hyper-focused on the profitability by client, right? Like, Hey, this client, it takes eight hours a month to do their bookkeeping. This one takes four, right? So we always think, okay, well, we want to price it as accurately as possible, but in the aggregate, are we making money on this service? Yes or no, right? I think it's so hard to, and we're not our model. We're not going to say, hey, David, you had 82 accounting transactions last month. This month you had 104. So your fee goes up this month. We're not doing that, right? First of yeah. all, it's an administrative nightmare to do that. But second, I just don't believe that to me is the nickel and diming approach. We're not into that. Sure. So we want to get their stuff done timely, accurately, and add value to them. So yeah, if this one client is kind of growing throughout the year pretty rapidly, we'll deal with that when they come up for renewal, right? The next year, sure. you know, if we're going to, if we're going to, or we say, Hey, you got to go to the next tier up here, but we're not going to kind of just upcharge them along the way here. And yeah, could our margin be a little bit lower on that client that year? Yeah, probably is. But there's a whole other bunch of other clients, right? That we have very good margins. And so on the aggregate, it is fine. So again, I think accountants by nature don't like that approach because it's not like perfect and not everything's, you want everything at the same 60%. I want 60% margin on everything, right? That doesn't, it doesn't work in reality. And I think when you yeah. look at other large businesses that are very successful, like insurance companies, that's not how they're doing it, right? Yeah, so that's exactly how we think about it. So again, that, that is a, the mindset shift though, to get there. And you'll have some clients who are very profitable for you because they're just great clients. They really don't need that much of your time. And in their mind, what they're paying you for is your expertise and your availability if they do need you. Mm -hmm. They're really paying for that, ex, you know, that capacity. And it gives them peace of mind, even if they don't use it very much. And that's where I think, you know, Ron talks about CPAs are terrible at underpricing their service. You know, Ron says CPAs are the most insecure of the professions mm -hmm. and he bases it on what they charge for stuff. And I yeah, think you like make a good point about the access there. Like access is a really important thing because, you know, sometimes you get the objections from a client. Like, I think the trap we don't want to fall into is what am I getting every single month for this? Right. They'll say, yeah. because I think people, and this is why people get scared away from this model is because they've had a bad experience trying it where, you know, it's probably not the right fit. Right. So you make sure the client is correct to go into this, but they're like, I didn't, I didn't talk to you in February. I want my money back. Right. And like, you got to be really clear on what what's included in this, right? And part of that is the access, like you said, that, hey, it's insurance, right? If something happens, we're going to deal with it. If you have a question, you can get through to us, no problem. And from a service perspective, you better be sure that it's true that they can get through to your staff, no problem, right? You can't say, hey, I'm charging this monthly fee, and then they send you an email or call you whatever, and it's three-week turnaround, right? That's not going to work either. So you do need to make sure that your fulfillment is up to par here, but you really need to tell them like, hey, you came to me and saying that you're paying 37% in taxes, your CPA doesn't respond to you, they're hard to contact. I'm telling you, we're going to do we're going to do the tax plan, we're going to get your books in order, and you can contact us with a no, our turnaround time is no more than 24 hours, as we say, with a client question. Now, you might not have the answer to that though, right? They might say, hey, Greg, what's this IC disc thing? I'm not going to be able to turn that around to them in 48 hours, but sure. I'm going to tell them, I acknowledge your question, we are working on it, and we'll get back to you in approximately two weeks, right? That's all they want. And I think the trap people fall into is, Oh, yeah, I know that guy emailed me. He's a pain. I'll email him later. But that in that guy's head, that is the biggest problem in his life right now, right? And you're ignoring that thing. Mm -hmm. Communication protocols. And we think it's very important to teach your clients that come into the subscription and onboarding what the expectation is, right? It's not the same day. It's not, hey, email me at 12 response before. No, that's not how we do it. And we actually have a protocol with clients that if there's a true emergency, they have a way to get through to us 
with an emergency code that, that literally sends red flags out to our team. And we say, the only way you use this is one, there's sometimes a situation with blood or two, the IRS is armed at your door. Other than, and, and if that happens, there's nothing I can do anyways. But, yeah. uh, and so, someone actually used it the other day because of the Silicon Valley thing. They said, hey, I'm reading these rumors. on. I, don't, I didn't think I was going to use this, but I'm reading these rumors online. This bank's going to go under. And I said, someone showed to me, it's like, there's no way that's true. And I looked it up online. I'm like, oh crap, he's right. Like He's got to move his money right now. But you know, you want to teach the clients upfront what the expectations are. Because again, if you don't do that, it can become chaotic where everyone's like, I got to use this subscription. I got to email David eight times a day on everything I read, right? They can, sure, they can email you eight times a day, but they need to be aware of what their ex- expectation of a response is. Do, yeah, I'm just fascinated by... I've never heard a CPA firm, you know, think like this. I just have a ton of questions. So one is, do you include audit defense in your fee? Or do up you charge to, so we have a little protection there up to eight hours we do. And, you know, again, my experience is that generally is going to cover the majority of things we've done. I mean, we don't, we don't offer IRS rep as like an outgoing service. Like we wouldn't take on a client that wants yeah, rep, right. but for our clients, correct. We will say, Hey, up to eight hours, if any type of like pesky notices about whatever, we'll deal with it. If we need to get involved with the IRS, we hope that eight hours covers it. If not, we'll talk about it, right? We don't say that if not, it's going to be this huge fee. Let's talk about it because we've had a few audits this year and there's, they're nothing audits, but they can drag out because of, you know, administrative paperwork and just, it just the back and forth, right? It takes forever. But yeah, we want to give clients peace of mind that if anything happens, we're there to help them. Well, if you want a little tip that I've learned, a little free tip is, so we also include audit defense. We put no limit on it. We just include it. And then when I have a client who's who has some price sensitivity and pushing back on fees, I'll say, yeah, no problem. And one of the things, I forget where I learned this years ago, when somebody wants a discount, they have to give up something. So we have all these things that we can strip out. And one of them is audit defense. And if they strip out audit defense, we'll usually take five grand off our fee for stripping out audit defense. And guess what percentage of the time they want it removed? Like one percent. Yeah, so they probably never do. Yeah. And it's and I can tell you it's a huge, it's probably the most it's one of the most profitable aspects of our fee, just because I did the analysis on probability, how much time it takes. But again, we're like an insurance company because for us, we're spreading that risk across hundreds of clients. But for them, they don't want that risk. And so they'd rather pay a premium to smooth it out. And Ron talks about this too. And that's where I learned that idea about the audit defense. So, so if you ever want to see just how valuable audit defense is in the mind of your client, if somebody pushes back on the fees, have a cheaper plan that strips that out, and you'll be amazed. But it's funny, on the flip side, if you say, hey, we have this add-on, unlimited audit defense for five grand, nobody takes advantage of it. You know, you're right. It's the takeaway versus add-in theory. Yeah. If it's just offered as, we've tried that too, offering as an additional, and many people, it's like, it's just like when you, when you buy a flight, right? They say, do you want to add on the $238 alliance insurance for this flight, which almost everything is excluded, you know, from it, but you'd be dumb not to buy this. And most people select, they think about it and they're like, I'm going to roll the dice. I'm not doing it. Right. So, but if it was already in there, right. If part of the price, different story. Yeah. And the other thing that lets you do too, that I've discovered is, you know, we basically have a platinum plan that is all in, everything's included. I mean, it's the, the top of the line. And then when people like balk at that, 
we have a whole bunch of things we can offer them in exchange. And yet all these are from Ron Baker. One of them is if a client's willing to sign a five-year engagement letter, I'll give them a discount for that. If a client's, you know, wants to strip out audit defense, I forget what else we do. Those are kind of the, my two go-tos. And it's funny because like the five-year engagement letter, I don't actually hold them to it. I mean, if a year later, they just, they don't want a disc anymore. Or they just don't like us. I mean, I'll let them out of it. But it's just interesting how psychologically that it's like, yeah, you know, we love your service, but it'd be great if you could do it, you know, for 20% less. Hey, no problem. Sign a 20-year engagement letter and we'll take 20% off. Right. And it changes the whole dynamic because they're like, well, and I can tell you when I give them options, they all, they frequently, they frequently end up not stripping out the audit defense or taking the five-year engagement. It's kind of like when you lay it out. The other thing I've heard that I've been, I've been kind of studying recently is the concept of adding more value, right? So let's use the same example. And someone says, uh, you know, $20,000 for your annual, you know, all in fee, that's a lot. You know, I'm more in the $15,000 ballpark, right? Well, what if you have some things in your back pocket that you can add in on top, right? To, to shrink the value disparity. So in other words, you say, you know, I'm not, we're not discounting anything. We're keeping our price same, but we're actually going to add in this cash flow forecast for you at no additional cost, right? Opportunity cost and time on our side, we keep our fees right. the same, right? So in my mind, you can do it either way. It's, there's a value disparity in someone's head between the price you're offering and the price they were coming in willing to part with, right? Mm -hmm. How do you shrink that? You shrink that by doing what you just said or the other way to shrink it, which it's interesting. I'm trying to figure it out, but is adding more in, right? So they say, okay, that cash flow forecast, that would probably be $4,000. Now I'm at $19,000. He's charging 20. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it, right? So we're trying to develop more of a playbook of what we can add in. Now, the trap there is you can't be it can't be a lot of one-to-one -one offerings, right? Meaning, exactly. hey, you get an extra, you get to meet with Greg every month. No, that's going to be a lot of money, right? But if it's, hey, we're going to add this once per quarter thing in that's going to be done by video, something that's very scalable, we could do that, right? So I've been learning about that concept too. It all comes down to in these subscription models and value models is the value of the client set versus the value that you're offering, ensuring you're communicating that properly, right? And then if there is a difference in opinion there, how do you, it's not always possible, but how do you shrink that perceived gap between you and them? No, that makes sense. Do you know the famous story about the factory that's shut down and they're losing like, you know, a million dollars a day and they call in some expert? Oh, yes. He looks at it and he turns one screw and he sends them a bill for a hundred grand and they think yep. that's ridiculous, right? They want it detailed, right? And, you know, the punchline is it's $5 to turn the screw and, you know, 900, you know, 99,000 to know which screw to turn. My, yeah. My education. I found lately, I use that a lot more with folks because our real differentiator is the transaction by transaction calculation compared mm -hmm. to the simple calculation. Now for one of your clients, it didn't get the big bang for the bucket. Typically it does, you know, usually it's a two to three X increase, but I'll be, I'll actually say, and one of the things we have to be careful of is that we don't turn around our work too soon. Because like if the client sends us all the information at eight in the morning and we have the return back at noon and we send them a hundred thousand dollar fee, they can't help but to go a hundred thousand dollars, four hours, twenty-five thousand dollars. You know, it seems like kind of expensive. one of the I think that's an industry problem is that unfortunately, like it goes back way before we were our parents and grandparents were born, but the hourly billing model has doctors, dentists, lawyers, accountants, everyone's trapped in this. The consumer believes it's all done by the hour, right? And we'll get people all the time saying, hey, well, I don't want to do that. Like, what is your hourly rate? And I'll say, I honestly don't have one. I have no idea. Like, if I made it up, I'll make I can make it up, sure. 
5,000, a thousand, four hundred, a dollar. Like I have no idea. We don't have like, and people are like, what do you mean you don't have one? I'm like, we don't have one. Like that's not how we do it. And I, we don't have another controversial subject, but we don't really track time. So, you know, there's occasionally projects where I think it'd be useful to understand the inputs that went into it, to understand mm-hmm. the staff's ability to complete that project. But we don't, I don't read time reports. I'm not reading a time report of someone's how long they spend on a tax return. I have an idea. How do I know that? We track turnaround times, right? I know that this yeah. project came in on January 1st. This project went out on January 31st. It was a 31 day turnaround time. Is that acceptable or not? Right. That's kind of what it comes down to. Do I really care if they spent two hours or 28 hours and just took them 30 days? I don't. So that's another industry issue, right? Where it's so ingrained in the consumer's head that we we all work based on that. It can be frustrating too to try to explain to someone that's just not how we price, right? We price based on the value we're going to deliver to you and the expertise that we have in this subject. Yeah. And that's and I think Ron says the research shows that a professional services firm, like they spend 10 or 15% of their time tracking time. Tracking time. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and I mean, I hate to say it, but you know, coming, I would I did it when I was younger in the time tracking world, like it's not the most accurate thing in the world. I mean, you're not literally figuring out every six minutes, right? You're kind of like at the end of the day, you you look at your thing, you're like, huh, I only had 5.25 hours tracked, like I have to get to eight, right? right. And then they, 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 you round up everyone from 0.25 to 0.30, right. then, then you get to eight. And then the partner looks at it. He's like, that's too much. I can't build Bob eight hours. Right. Bob's exactly. going to freak out. And you write it off anyway. So I'm like, what's the point of that? <laughs> you know, and like how I personally, and I think I personally don't like, and I think a lot of, you know, newer business owners don't like a surprise bill, right? Yeah. It comes, I don't care if it's expensive, as long as I know it up front and I agree to the, if someone says, Hey, Greg, this project that we're going to help your firm do is $40,000 and say, okay, well, what am I getting for that? Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. I'm good with that. What's the payment schedule? Cool. But if they said, oh yeah, we'll just, we'll work for the next six months. And then we'll just send you a bill. I would be anxious about that or what's, what it's going to cost. Right. And then they hit you with the $40,000 bill. And I'm immediately going to be upset by that. Whether or not I was happy with the value they provided me, that initial shock of opening that bill, consumers don't want that, right? So I've tried to say to them, hey, this is a guaranteed fee, right? There's very little you're going to do to go outside of the scope. Now, there's crazy stuff you can do that's outside of this subscription scope. But for the most part, you don't need to worry about it, right? Budget this into your budget. We're going to save you offsetting tax anyways. Let's go forward, right? So I think it's just a better way of transacting business versus the surprise, here's a $50,000 bill at the end of the year. Yeah, no, I would, I, I totally agree. And I had a client once that just said, hey, we just need your fee broken out. You know, we need your 100,000 or maybe it was a $150,000 fee. I mean, like you, we're not the low cost provider. And, and I said, yeah, no problem. It's like preparing the IC disc return, $1,000. You know, I just list out three or four things. But then I had intellectual property charge was like, you know, 130,000. I mean, it was like 98% of the bill. And once I presented to him that way, they're kind of like, oh, so we're really buying your knowledge, not your time. Yep. That's totally. I mean, you know, it. I, well, I generally will say, you know, we try to vet out a, a customer upfront where before we even get into this situation, whether there's, if they, to me, if they mention price in the first introductory call, yeah. it's likely yeah. not going to be a good fit because that means that, that is one of the most valuable things to them is the price sensitivity. If the incoming message to us through the internet says, what are your charges? Something that literally just, they're not moving forward. We, we toss them aside. The first call, you can usually tell, right? If they're, it's like, oh no, your value is great. This is awesome. What do we need to do move forward? Probably a good fit. If they're like, what's this all going to cost me, right? Like that's, 
it's probably not going to be right because it sounds to me like there's going to be some kind of negotiation of fees. And, you know, I don't, at this point, like we don't spend a lot of time on that. If someone is, if someone says this is too expensive for me, I say, okay, well, you know, let us know if you have any more questions. Right. And sorry, like, and we had someone recently, they had an independent party vetting their TPA potentials or whatever. And they said, you know, current CPA, blah, 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 doesn't do anything, no value, slow. He owes me three amended returns for an R&D credit, hasn't done them, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, that's unfortunate. So we gave him the pricing. They said, you know, your pricing per month is more than that guy charged per year. I said, okay. And said, well, why is it 12 times as much as he? I'm like, we're not doing the same thing. You just said that he hasn't done any of the work. He doesn't respond to anything. And he sends you a bill at the end of the year. I'm saying, we're going to work with you throughout the year. You're going to have those stuff done and there's going to be no extra bills. So to me, it's apples and oranges. Like that person couldn't get their head around it. But I said, I'm not, they said, is there anything cheaper? You're quite expensive. I said, I don't think we cost anything, honestly. That's what I said back then. But it's like, at this point, there's no sense of getting in that back and forth because that person's probably going to lead to other conversations like that along the way. So I've always said to other practitioners that are starting this, don't get in the back and forth of trying to justify your pricing model. It's your, that's your model, right? I don't, you don't go to, you know, a store and say, well, I don't like the price of this hat. They say, right. okay, then don't, then don't buy it. Right. You know, like what, and what other profession are you allowed to do that? Do you go into the dentist and say, mm, no, no, I don't like that, that insurance bill you're sending. I'm not cool with that. Like, no, you don't do that. Right. And so why do CPAs and lawyers too, like, why do they feel the need to get bullied around like that? Sometimes it's just, here's my model, take it or leave it. If you don't like it, that's great. You don't have to work with us. So it's that it's, and I've had that feeling too, of like, you do generally want to help so many people. You want to get them over the hump, but if they can't see what you're offering has value, don't force them into it. Right. Because it's probably going to lead to worse things down the road. And I've done that, right. I've done that before. So you want to just show them value. If they don't, if they don't like it, go your separate ways. No, under, understood. So, so I've got a few more questions. So the one is, so I'm quite frankly, I'm kind of, uh, well, I'm borderline shocked that you started the firm less than five years ago. Five years in you, November, October. Yeah. Yeah. So will that be five years this fall or six five, years? This fall? Five years this fall. Yeah. So it's not even been five years. And I wouldn't have been surprised if you said your team had three or four people, but you mentioned your team is 23. 23, so, soon to be 25 on Monday, two people starting Monday. That is awesome. So how? You know, every CPA firm I talk to says they cannot find people, cannot find people. So how are you finding people? Do you have a little hidden hidden community mm-hmm. in Massachusetts that you get all these people from? So yeah, we didn't really get into this before, but like the model overall. So we're a hundred percent virtual. So myself and my partner, John, are up here in Boston area. And there are every single person other than us is in another state. So we have really actually, you know what? Like if you want to say the most we have the most employees in Arkansas of any state. We have three randomly have three people in Arkansas. But I bet I can guess why. I bet I can guess why. There, there's a there is a price disparity disparity, right? Of hiring someone in New York City, right? Yeah. Or down south. It, that's just kind of the economies of scale of what has opened up from COVID. And when we first started hiring in 2019. It was difficult because there wasn't a talent pool of people looking to work remotely. So uh-huh. I did I, my first employee that we hired, he's still here today. He was in Pennsylvania. And I said, oh, this is interesting. He can work for me from Pennsylvania. And I'm quite surprised it doesn't cost what it costs in downtown Boston for a senior accountant, right? So mm-hmm. I kind of opened my eyes up. So what we've gone with the model of, you know, I have my ways of targeting and online stuff like that, but 
it's literally work from anywhere. We have an employee whose husband was deployed in the military and she works full-time from basically an Air Force base overseas. We've done international hiring in Philippines. So we are technologically set up for success to work with someone wherever they are, as long as they have an internet connection. And I think we lucked out and that's what we, that was the vision from really 2019 forward. And then when COVID happened, the technology, frankly, got a lot better mm. and the employee pool looking to work this way exponentially grew, right? So I do feel for the firms that are 100% in office that their talent pool is limited to a 20 mile radius where I'm not exaggerating that our talent pool is truly anywhere in the world, yeah. right? So, Well, and that um, arbitrage and that rate arbitrage of somebody who you know is in a market that, that, that doesn't pay as well that all of a sudden they're being paid on, you know, Boston. Totally. And, and it is difficult, right? From an employer perspective too, to understand the cost of living adjustments between 50 states, right? Like I, frankly, it's not easy to figure that out. And then if you're going to do some international hiring, figuring that part of it out, but, you know, generally our team, like we want to make sure they're, again, they're compensated on the value that they're bringing too, right? So we're not really into like when we have contractors that help, we're not really into hourly rates, we'd rather have a fixed rate, you know, because we know what the value they're going to bring to us. So I always say in the hiring front is that I haven't really found much success using a recruiter. I found more success really going down the rabbit hole ourselves and targeting people on LinkedIn, on Indeed, these different platforms and just having a conversation with them saying, hey, Let's just have a conversation, see if you, would you like doing this, right? Because you may not like working remotely in this kind of atmosphere. We are high paced, we're fast growth. It's, if you've never worked remotely before, buyer beware, right? Because there's a little bit of an isolation factor for people too, that have maybe they're working at PwC in an office with a thousand people. And now they're sitting, you know, in their home office with their spouse at work, right? It's different for sure. For some people, they love it. There's other people that we've hired that have, frankly, it hasn't been what their cup of coffee is, right? So we always want to make sure we vet that out up front of, have you worked remotely before? And if not, do you understand what you're getting into, right? Because it's different. It's different. So we love it. We love it. We love being 100% remote. It allows for a lot of flexibility. I mean, we do an annual retreat somewhere in the US every year with our team that we bring everyone together for a week. That's how we get to do that. And you need to be creative with ways to keep your culture strong in a sure. remote atmosphere. So, you know, we do Friday kind of, you know, lunch games and stuff like that. We do different stuff and we're a pretty close knit team where it's, it is funny when you see people once per year. And like the first time I met some of my employees actually was in at a retreat. And I'm like, geez, I didn't know that guy was, you know, six foot four. I thought he was five foot eight, right? Uh-huh. You have no idea. Right. So there's some funny things like that. We all laugh about it, but yeah, I mean, I encourage people to explore the model because with the right protocols in place internally with IT and everything, you can truly expand to wherever you want. Yeah, that's awesome. So you said soon to be 25. So how do you decide when to hire? Do you wait till it just everything breaks and clients are screaming at you and then you reluctantly add some people or how does that work? I think capacity planning is the most difficult. Actually, I'm positive it's the most difficult thing in the CPA profession. If anyone has figured it out, let me know. But it's very difficult. And what we used to do is you'd be riding high. Everything's great. Clients come in the door. Yep. They seem like they're busy. Oh, wait. Now everyone seems like they're busy. Okay. Let me start hiring. Oh no, the market turned. It's, oh geez, it's been eight weeks. I still can't find somebody. And then all of a sudden people are getting really overwhelmed internally. So, so we work off of what we call a revenue-based capacity model. Um, There's an organization out there called PASBA, Professional Association of Small Business Accounts that, that kind of teaches this. And what it basically is, right, you need to be comfortable with how much revenue can one staff handle, right? So 
Again, if you're in a subscription fixed price model, you can do this because remember I said before, I'm pricing based on the relationship. One staff can handle about 20 relationships. Yeah. Well, if you're pricing things correctly, I know what that tw- I know what 20 clients equals from a revenue perspective. Right. If your staff works with that person throughout the year and handles 85 to 90% of that work, and they might need some other people to chime in, but they're doing all that work, you know the margin that you're getting on that, right? So we look at it at a revenue-based model. So if someone has a $10,000 gap on their revenue, I say, okay, that's equal to a few clients. And if I look at across the portfolio, I say, geez, we're six to eight clients away from being at revenue capacity. We got to get hiring, right? Because I know that we're bringing on two to three subscription clients per month, You know, whatever the data is. That means I'm going to be at capacity in 60 days. I know it takes at least 30 days to train somebody. I'm actually already behind. So that mm-hmm. has been a that was a 2022 mindset shift that that I struggled with, frankly, because you do need to be okay with a short term cash flow hit, right? Of hey, I don't I need to hire two to three staff in the next 60 days that frankly won't be at capacity for six months, and I'm carrying mm-hmm. that cost. But I'm confident long term, my sales and marketing plan works. This is going to keep coming in. People are going to feel a whole lot better with excess capacity. Than limited capacity, right? And you need to make sure that you're communicating internally that, hey, we're bringing on ex- excess capacity, right? On purpose, right? This is why we're doing that. And we're going to grow into this. I think it's a whole lot better than waiting till you're busy and then you're at the mercy of the market. And frankly, you can make a bad hire, right? Because you're stressed, you're under pressure. And if someone says they're a CPA, you're probably going to say, when can you start? Yeah. Well, and that's so interesting because I hadn't thought about that aspect of it, that another benefit of subscription and premium pricing is that a you have the monthly cash flow right because face it when you hire employees they kind of like to be paid regularly at least that's my Correct. experience yes and so you have that regular revenue to better match it and if you're charging a premium to where you have some actual margin mm-hmm. that you can absorb that excess capacity till we get up to steam or up to speed which is a problem with that classic firm that has 5,000 clients that they charge $750 a year each is, you know, they don't have the profit in there to go over higher. It's, it seems it depends like. on the time of the year, right? If it's collection season, they're feeling good. If it's not collection season, they're probably going to have to take out a line of credit or debt to pay for that. Right. So again, like yeah. that is another benefit of the subscription models. And that's like the most basic benefit to me is that I, I know that on the first of the month, there's a lot of money coming in that you don't have to, you don't think it twice. You t- kind of take it for granted, right? Like we don't have AR. Right? And I always say, why do accounting firms have AR? What, and I hear people talking about writing off collections. I'm like, what are you writing off and why are you doing that? Right. And again, what other profession does a service get performed and delivered and not paid, right? Like who else would do that? Would you, you're not stiffing the, the heart surgeon over, right? You're not, st- you're not stiffing the, any other profession over, but for some reason, it happens where accountants will send out bills, the client will ignore it, not pay it, or they'll negotiate you down to pennies on the dollar, and then you're okay with it, right? And it's like, now, if that happened for some reason, you probably should not do business with them again, right? Yeah. But a lot of times it's the same, oh, Bob, yeah, Bob only pays 50% of the bill, you know, that's just Bob. Well, what are we doing, right? Like, and you know, we have the, we always say, if there are fixed price out of projects we do, and if we do those projects along the way, it is paid upfront in full, right? Right. Say, well, you haven't done the work yet, I said, yeah, why would I? But I'm not working for free either, right? So we, we well, you know what's funny is I just had an experience last week. My dry cleaner and a shoe repair place, both of them started requiring prepayment by the customer. And guess what? It's because people forget they have the item there. 
and just sits there. Just sits there that they legally can't do it. You know, they legally can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And so they are prepaying. And I'm like, that's brilliant because, and I talked to him about it and I said, Hey, what's your, what percentage of the stuff do people forget to pick up now? And they're like zero people have prepaid for it. Like totally. it gets stored in a different part of their brain. Well, it's like, imagine if you said to, if you rented an apartment or you, even if you own a home, you said, well, I'm not paying my rent till the 31st. I haven't used the apartment yet. Right. I'll pay it after you Like that's that mindset, right. Of why would I pay for something I haven't hasn't been done yet? I haven't been able to live here for 31 days yet, so I'm not paying the bill. No, you pay it up front. So it's like, again, I don't think there's actually a rhyme or reason other than the culture of the CPA and the accounting community has gotten, frankly, abused over the last 200 years where it's just, that's yeah. just what it is. You do the work and you send the bill and you hope that they pay it, right? Send it hope. And then you spend hours and hours trying to collect. And like, there's nothing more painful than having that conversation of negotiating a bill. So and if someone doesn't like that you're billing up front again, then why are you doing business with them? There's what's the ratio, like 800 to one, you know, businesses to CPAs out there, move on, right? right. Like, you know, so I, again, I won't understand when people do the bill and chase model, right? I mean, at the very beginning I did it and I'm like, this is stressful. Like I, you can see now, oh, they viewed the invoice. Why aren't they paying the invoice? It's something wrong, <laughs> you know? So no, you have them on a subscription, you charge their card, you charge their bank account on the first of the month, right? There it is. So what's the feedback that you get from your employees as far as the model you have versus if they came from a traditional firm? Good good question. I, that is funny because we've had a lot of staff come from traditional firms and they're usually surprised by the lack of volume of compliance work. Uh, we had someone a couple of years ago that came in and she had personally prepared like 300 to 325 tax returns. And when she started, I told her, I said, we only do 285 tax returns at the time. And I'm like, she's like, what? She's like, and she's like, I don't understand. And then she probably had red flags. She's like, is this guy going to go out of business? Like what's happening? But she came from a regional firm and she prepared more tax returns and our whole company does and probably done as many as I've done in my life. And I'm like, this is, that's, it's just different. Right. But then she had to grow into, and she really loved the model of low volume compliance, high value relationship, right? There's a lot of communication we do with clients. They ask us a lot of questions. You have to be comfortable meeting with clients, right? So and again, it's not the typical accountant may not like that where we're asking them to get on meetings with the clients all the time and be comfortable leading a meeting, teaching the client. So that's definitely, that's the harder thing to teach in my opinion in this profession is getting a staff member comfortable with the relationship aspect of it. They can, you can find a lot of people that can really do tax returns very well, but can you get, find the people that can do a tax return pretty darn well and also get on a meeting with somebody and explain to them the results of the tax return and why they saved money or why they owe more money, right? Like that's the difficult part. And it's hard. It's very hard because, you know, we try to coach internally, give kind of like bullet points, people to talk about Not not everyone's comfortable with that. But it's, I always tell the staff, like, if you want to really grow in this profession, that's where I personally believe it's going because I'm not someone that believes the bots are taking over tomorrow, but I do believe that a lot of compliance-based work is going to get outsourced, offshore, automated over the next decade, more than it already is, right? There's all these RPA companies that are already out there. So what's not get stuck? You, you as a staff member don't want to get stuck doing that because it's there's going to be downward pricing pressure on that part of the service. You got to become an advisor. If you become an advisor, you're going to be okay. No matter what happens with the robots, right? So you're always right. going to need that advisor, right? So know how to do the tax returns, but don't get caught. And that's your only skill that you have in this profession. Yeah. And you bring up a good point because, you know, 
accountants are not stereotypically known as being the most extroverted people. So is that something, do you, I guess, interpersonal skills maybe matter a little more in your model than the they, they definitely skills? matter. They matter a lot. And we do hire, like if someone, not that we use a grade scale, right? But if I said, hey, this person, this candidate has an A interpersonal skills and a B minus compliance, bookkeeping, tax return skill versus someone that was an A and in the opposite, right? That it was an A tax return and a B minus personality. I would go with the A personality because I believe you can teach the rest of it, right? You can, it's right. I learned tax, right? You can learn tax. You can learn accounting. I think you can teach that. It's very difficult to teach the interpersonal skills because if someone is in their middle of their career, are you really going to, I made that mistake. I made that mistake before. Are you really going to flip someone as a person? Yeah. Right. You can't, and you can't put them in a bad position. Right. You can't put someone that wants to be back behind the scenes, you know, tax person, which you need. You don't want to put that person in a bad position where they're uncomfortable meeting. Yeah. Right. So, and if that is the case, right, there, we do have room for that. Right. And if that's the case, that's fine. You just need to make sure there's a client facing advisor in front of them. So, um, yeah. so I'm I, guessing, I think- I'm sorry, I'm guessing when you hear from clients who are really ecstatic with your team. They probably never say, you know, Susie just crushed that tax return. I mean, you know, she just did an Frankly, amazing job. They don't. I'm guessing right? the it, stories are like, are like, you know, I called Susie on a Friday afternoon with like this emergency, and she like went the extra mile and had to turn around like Saturday morning that, for me. It, oh, you're so right there. And what I've always said to the staff is, I said, if we are really good client communicators, we take care of them, we care about them as people, and we give them good service, go above and beyond. If we make a mistake on the journal entry, they're not going to burn us at the stake for it, right? If you're a terrible communicator, don't talk to them, ignore their questions, and then you make the journal entry backwards, they're going to burn you at the stake. Believe me, I've been there, right? So, and it's so true, right? That if it's just if if someone really takes care of you, and if if I'm a consumer, someone's taking care of me, and they make a little mistake, it happens. I'm not, you're not going to get that upset, right? Because you know, hey, they do a good job for me. It happens. Life happens. They made a mistake. But if everything else is bad, and then they make the mistake. It ain't going to go well, right? I mean, I felt, I mean, look, we, every, I would be lying if I said we haven't made mistakes on tax returns. Of course we have. Everyone does, right? When that tax return mistake happens and we can own it and apologize, and it usually goes over okay if they have a good relationship with us, right? But if it was a, again, if it was a one-off $750 transactional subject, they would be pissed, right? So it's all about the relationship, in my opinion, and it buys you a lot of grace when you do a really good job. And I just, I can't stress enough, like the, don't be afraid to go above and beyond. You see that, hey, they're struggling this or this. I just saw this article about this local incentive in their city. Send it to them, like send it to them right away, right? Get in front of it, help offer them to apply for them, right? Like, yeah, it's going to take you two hours of time. That's going to buy you three years of relationship, right? So I just thinking like that is so important in my mind. That is great. So Greg, I cannot believe how fast the time has Mm. gone. I have two remaining questions for you before we wrap up. Are you ready? I'm ready. So the first is, if you could go back in time and show up at your undergraduate graduation ceremony or your first day of your job at the regional firm, and you could give advice to your 22-year-old self, what advice might you give? This one will probably be controversial, but I'd say start sooner. So quit quit the, that world and start sooner because I believe that it's all about the mindset and a lot of the skills can be learned, right? There's a trap out there where people say, well, I need 15 years experience in tax before I can start on my own. It's not true. If you have a good entrepreneurial mind, you can hire people a lot smarter than you to worry about that. I I had a feeling that was going to be your answer. 
So the last one, was there anything that we didn't cover that you wish we had or anything we talked about? No, I mean, you can go down so many different rabbit holes in this world. I just think that, you know, I'm just such a believer in this subscription model of growing a business this way. I think you can grow quickly. And I also think one of the best things out there is there are a lot of communities of like-minded accountants out there. And getting in those communities is so valuable to me where I can ask people these ideas, throw crazy things off the wall, and you're not getting judged for asking these crazy questions. So those exist. They're out there. So I always say join communities, right? And just tell them, hey, here's where I'm at. How do I get to where you are? You are. I've learned the most from networking with entrepreneurial accounting firm owners that are ahead of me. And I say, mm-hmm. hey, what happens when you hire 15 people? What about 20? And I'm telling you, most of the time they're right. They say they're going to have issues at this benchmark and this benchmark. Beware of it. Now, I, there's nothing more I love than when someone that's starting a practice calls me and saying, hey, what is it like hiring the first person? Right. And I say, well, here's what's going to happen. Right. So it's so important to network above you and help those below you. Okay. That is great. And if and so if you're hiring two more people, you probably have capacity for the right client. How should people reach out to you or find you or learn more about you? Or if they want to hire you, what should they do? Yeah, definitely. So our website is gotaxplanning.com, geotaxplanning.com. Best way to get in touch with us. I'm on LinkedIn as well, Greg O'Brien. And yeah, I love to talk to like-minded accountants or any anyone out there that needs help. That sounds great. Well, hey, Greg, I really appreciate you taking the time. This was really I really enjoyed it. And it was really refreshing to to hear your enthusiasm around this model and, you know, kind of connect with the Ron Baker mindset similarity we share. So I really appreciate the time and I'll definitely be looking out for folks to introduce to you because I love your attitude, your mindset and the model. Thanks for having me, David. I enjoyed this as well. Awesome. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-d-i-s-c-s-h-o-w.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.